It's the 15th of August, 2015, and this is episode 238. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we hear from Jerry Brito, executive director of CoinCenter.org, on the California bid license, why they support it, and believe you should too. Then, we step back again for one of my absolute favorite thinkers, Corey Doctorow, author, philosopher, and entrepreneur. We'll spend most of today's show with him and a talk plus Q&A entitled, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. But first, let's talk legislation, for good and for awesome. Enjoy the show. Last month, AB 1326, a bill that would create a new licensing system for digital currency businesses in California, advanced in the California State Senate. Although it sounds like a bill that would create new regulations for digital currencies like Bitcoin, in fact, it's deregulatory in that it would replace an existing onerous money transmission licensing regime with a much better tailored alternative. Hi, this is Jerry Brito, Executive Director of Coin Center, a leading nonprofit research and advocacy center that's focused on the public policy issues facing cryptocurrency technologies such as Bitcoin. You can learn more about us at coincenter.org. Recently, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, has launched a lobbying campaign opposing California's AB 1326, and I'd like to tell you why we don't think that's the right approach. AB 1326 is a bill that we support and that Coin Center has helped develop and improve by working with its sponsor and by educating California lawmakers on digital currency technology. As I said in testimony before the Senate in California last month, the bill is not perfect and it could be improved, but it's also the best bill we've seen from any state because it takes cryptocurrency's unique attributes into account and avoids unnecessary regulation. So we're sad to see that the only official opposition to the bill is coming from our friends at EFF, with whom we're typically in complete alignment. Our friends at the Copia Institute are similarly opposed to the bill. We think, though, that their opposition stems from a misunderstanding of the state of the law in this space. Now, before I explain this misunderstanding, Let me say that there are indeed technical issues with the bill that we agree with EFF should be changed. For example, the disclosure requirements in the bill are specific to Bitcoin, while the bill applies to all digital currencies. This means that while the law would apply to businesses building on top of Ripple, Stellar, Ethereum, and Litecoin, just as much as Bitcoin businesses, the language of the disclosure statements that the bill requires mention things like confirmation times that are specific to Bitcoin and wouldn't make sense for any of those other networks. And it would also be great to see a definition of full custody included in the bill. In my testimony before the Senate and privately to legislative staff, I advocated for the definition of custody in Coin Center's framework for state digital currency regulation, which you can read on our website and which makes clear to delineate between those 
businesses that have full custody of somebody's funds and those that are merely providing a service and will allow you to have custody of funds yourself. That all said, EFF and Copia's main reason for opposing the bill is that it's just too early to impose regulation on such a nascent industry. Copia's Mike Masnick wrote recently, quote, while there's a reasonable argument that an absence of rules is problematic, mainly for the uncertainty it creates, the rules that are put in place could have a tremendous impact on future innovation. And he goes on to say, at this stage of the game, creating licensing regimes and putting permission barriers on innovation is very, very premature. And in EFF's recent blog post, they write, quote, the regulation is premature. Digital currency is an industry in its infancy. We don't know what the future of cryptocurrencies will look like, but this legislation locks in a burdensome regulation before we know either where the technology is headed or what its likely uses will be. Here's the thing. In a vacuum, I would completely agree with them. This is a nascent industry. Regulating it prematurely could stunt it, and an absence of rules would not necessarily be a bad thing. But we're unfortunately not in a vacuum. It is not correct to believe that digital currency businesses today are not subject to regulation, that AB 1326 would, for the first time, subject them to regulation, and that if AB 1326 does not pass, then businesses will remain unregulated. It is incorrect to believe that, but for this bill, there would be an absence of rules. The fact is that California's Money Transmission Act applies to digital currency businesses today. Almost every state in the country has a money transmission law, and Bitcoin businesses everywhere are currently in the process of applying for money transmission licenses under those laws. Those existing money transmission laws, including California's, however, were written at a time before cryptocurrency and don't take the technology's unique characteristics into account. Applying those existing money transmission laws without modifying them is potentially very bad for cryptocurrency businesses. For example, Coinbase recently ceased all operations in Wyoming because the banking regulator there applied the existing money transmission law without any modifications. One particular piece of that law requires that for every dollar in Bitcoin a consumer has at a hosted wallet, the service provider must also keep a dollar in fiat on hand. That amounts to a 200% reserve requirement, one that even a well-capitalized startup like Coinbase can't practically comply with. As it turns out, California's Money Transmission Act and many other such laws in other states have the same requirement. AB 1326 would get rid of that requirement. If AB 1326 does not pass, I would expect the Department of Business Oversight in California to issue guidance or rules applying existing money transmission licensing to digital currency businesses, just as Wyoming did. In January, the department's commissioner said that, quote, the California Department of Business Oversight has not decided whether to regulate virtual currency transactions or the businesses that arrange such transactions under the state's money transmission act. News accounts suggest that the department has concluded that it indeed has the authority to regulate digital currency businesses under existing rules, 
but are demurring so that the legislature may produce a digital currency-specific law. If the legislature does not, it is likely that the department will decide to go ahead and regulate under the existing statute. Some have said that there's no reason to believe that they will do that, but we've already seen California's Department of Business Oversight use the Money Transmission Act against the Bitcoin entity. In 2013, the department sent the Bitcoin Foundation a cease and desist letter for, quote, allegedly engaging in the business of money transmission without a license. That was shown to be an overreach, but it also shows that the department is willing to apply the money transmission laws to Bitcoin. Unlike AB 1326, California's existing money transmission statute has no exemption for software development. It has no exemption for non-custodial businesses. It has no provisional license for startups. It has no exemption for miners or others who contribute resources to decentralized digital currency networks. And as I mentioned, it has a permissible investment requirement. Want to offer Bitcoin wallet product? Well, prepare to invest in a dollar into a state treasury bonds for every dollar in Bitcoin a customer stores using your product. Some have said that the existing money transmission law does not cover the mere development of software, or perhaps even mining. So, even if it is applied as is, no exception for software mining is necessary. This is technically true, but it's not always so black and white whether you're simply engaged in software development or are also engaged in money transmission. Think, for example, about a company like Blockstream which is developing sidechain technology, the ability to move Bitcoins from the Bitcoin blockchain into a separate chain with unique capabilities, a sidechain. Because of limitations in the Bitcoin protocol, there's no way at present to move the sidechain-denominated tokens back into the Bitcoin blockchain without using a set of predefined functionaries, individuals or institutions, uh, who listen for messages from sidechains validate their authenticity, and then cryptographically sign a statement releasing the sidechain user's bitcoins back into the Bitcoin blockchain. This system is referred to as a federated peg, and the functionaries are key holders in a multi-sig transaction, typically three or five. Given this technological arrangement, could the federated functionaries be regulated as money transmitters and made to get a license from the state under existing law? That's an open question. Quote, selling or issuing stored value is money transmission under California statute, as is, quote, selling or issuing payment instruments, end quote. The ambiguity of this definition is palpable in the case of sidechains. Is a member of the federated peg issuing stored value by temporarily immobilizing bitcoins while the user transacts on the sidechain? Is the transaction releasing the user's Bitcoins back into the Bitcoin blockchain a, quote, payment instrument under the law? Such interpretations would, no doubt, be a stretch for the existing understanding, but that doesn't mean that the Department of Business Oversight would have no authority to make such interpretations. AB 1326 gives relief from these onerous regulations to hobbyist developers and small and large businesses alike. We don't imagine BFF and others want to deny these innovators such relief. We think they've dangerously misjudged the implications and unintended consequences of their vocal opposition. Bottom line, 
It's not a choice between this bill and no regulation. It's a choice between the sensible regulation in AB 1326, even if it could be improved, and the ill-fitting regulation of the money transmission. If this bill fails, we may end up with the aggressive and industry-stunting regulation that we're all seeking to avoid. And if this bill fails, we'd also lose the best bill we've seen that could be a model for other states and a counterweight to the bit license. At Coin Center, we're idealistic but pragmatic, and we think opposing this bill is letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. The bill could certainly be improved, but even if it passes as it is, it would still be much, much better than having the existing ill-fitting money transmission license apply. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by GetKeepKey.com, the makers of a safe and easy Bitcoin hardware wallet that'll be available later this year. Although not yet available, I've been trying out a production model for the last few weeks and have a couple of thoughts on it. In their explainer video, KeepKey imagines you'll store your hardware wallet in a safe or somewhere else physically protective. In practice, I've found this isn't how I use it. With its large screen and flat rectangular form factor, I've actually found it quite useful mounted on top of one of my monitors. When I want to make a purchase, I just connect it to my computer via mini-USB, and it acts as a second secure screen letting me easily and securely verify everything from pin entry to my purchases and transfers. When I'm finished, I just unplug the cable and the keep key goes dark until next time. KeepKey is open source, and if you'd like to take a look or give it an audit, head over to github.com keepkey. And to learn more about KeepKey or to be notified when it's available, head over to getkeepkey.com. The magic word for today's episode is free. That's F-R-E-E. Free. You've got until the 22nd of August to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. In the not-too-distant past, Cory Doctorow visited the Institute for the Future in Palo Alto, California, and gave a talk called Information Doesn't Want to Be Free. Over the last few years, I've heard many variations of this talk from him, and it's had quite an impact on how I look at the world we inhabit. This talk is followed by a Q&A that had very poor audio for the questions, so they were removed, but the answers were left. We think you won't have a problem figuring it out. Without further ado, Cory Doctorow. I'm going to talk tonight not directly about uh, what a new network would look like, but what some of the challenges are to kind of getting us from here to there. A, a specific challenge about um, the way that our laws and norms are structured in relation to the computers that are around us. And those computers, I don't need to tell this audience, are uh, more ubiquitous with every day. Uh, a house these days, once you have a, a nest in it, and uh, a few sensors here and there, the most important thing about that house, the thing that makes it habitable or not habitable is the software loaded into your HVAC system. So your house becomes a giant computer that you live in, right? It's a, it's a case mod that you inhabit. And it's not just houses, cars too. You know, that we've seen attacks at DEF CON and, and at uh, uh, Black Hat where uh, people have taken out the steering and brakes of cars using their Bluetooth interfaces. So one of the most salient facts about your car is that, again, it's a case mod on wheels that hurdles you down the road at 80 miles an hour with all the doors locked, and you hope that the firmware is doing what it's supposed to do. The Boeing 747, I flew from England to America, and at the start of this, this very long book tour I'm on, if I, if I seem a little uh, uh, pressed flat, it's because this is my 20-something consecutive day on the road. Uh, 
But on the other hand, the TSA assures me that my reproductive health is excellent because I opt out and I've had the groping every day and uh, they wouldn't have missed anything down there. So um, uh, that 747 was a Flying Sun Solaris workstation in a very fancy aluminum case connected to some tragically badly secured SCADA controllers. And it's not just that we increasingly keep our bodies inside of computers all the time and trust that they're doing what they're supposed to do. We also increasingly have computers inside of our bodies, right? Whether that's um, those of us who uh, uh, grew up with either uh, Walkman or MP3 players and who have logged lots of punishing earbud hours such that if you eventually live to a ripe enough old age and aren't killed by a self-driving car first, you will need a hearing aid, and that hearing aid is vanishingly unlikely to be a kind of beige retro hipster analog transistorized hearing aid. It's going to be a computer that lives inside of your body, and that will be a computer that, depending on its configuration and depending on its governance model, which is what I'm going to talk about tonight, really, um, that computer will either uh, tell you what's there and let you keep it to yourself, or it might tell other people what you're hearing, or make you hear things that aren't there, or stop you he from hearing things that are there. And this sounds like something that's in our distant future, like science fiction, but it's something that is increasingly around us if we only care to look for it. So I travel all the time. I'm changing the climate. Ask me how. And the, the first rule of the road warrior is ABC, always be charging. And so I, f I found myself in, a, in an airport lounge, and I did what I always do, which I scan the baseboards for electrical outlets. And I found the only one that wasn't occupied, and I made a beeline for it, and I took it over, and I was smugly congratulating myself for having the chance to charge my laptop before the flight. And a guy came over, and very cheekily, he said, you know, can I use that outlet? And I was like, I'm charging my laptop. And he rolled up his pants leg and showed me this robotic prosthesis he was wearing from the knee down. He said, I need to charge my leg before the flight. And I said, it's all yours. So what does it mean to live in a world where our computers are inside of our bodies, our bodies are inside of computers, where everything we own is just a fancy peripheral for a computer? Um, well, it means that our regulation and governance models are running up against some really weird things that they've never had to contend with before. Because computers have this very odd, interesting, important, almost uh, transcendental uh, property which is that they can run all the programs, right? Um, before we developed computers that, as we know them today, we would build special purpose computers. So if you wanted to tabulate the census, you would wire up an electronic computer that could tabulate the census. And if you wanted to calculate ballistic tables, you would wire up an electric computer that could calculate the ballistic tables. And if you were ambitious, you might combine a few functions in one computer. But nobody, uh, if you needed a, a new kind of problem solved, you, you made a new computer. Right? And with the, uh, the push to build the general purpose computer at the Princeton Institute and at Bletchley Park as part of the overall effort uh, to do code breaking um, and, uh, and, and uh, munitions during World War II, uh, we developed the von Neumann machine, the, the Turing complete computer, the idea of a computer that could execute all the programs that could be expressed symbolically, all the, all the programs that we know about. And that's, um, that's an amazing thing to have, right? To, to have this, this, this single computer, this single architecture for a device that can solve every problem. Now, of course, more powerful computers solve problems more quickly, and less powerful problem, computers solve uh, uh, problems less quickly. But one of the things that computer science keeps bumping up against is that um, 
we can't make computers that are kind of able to run all the programs, except for some ones that we don't like. So this, this is a, a recurring motif at security conferences, because over and over again, people develop little programming languages and little devices that are only supposed to do a few things, right? Like, I'm making a social media website, and I want people to be able to animate their GIF glitter unicorns across the masthead of their page, and that's it. And so I have a little scripting environment that lets you animate your GIF unicorns, and it is pronounced GIF. And uh, uh, then at Black Hat that year, or at Chaos Communications Congress, or at, at DEF CON, somebody inevitably stands up and says, you know those like four instructions you put in your glitter unicorn programming language? I figured out how to bootstrap those into the full set of primitives you need for Turing completeness, and I've written a virus in your, in your unicorn glitter language, which happens over and over again, right? There are virus, like basically, it just, Turing completeness seems at first to have been a miracle to have discovered, but now we can't get rid of it, right? It, it pops up in places we don't want it. There's a, little, there's a beautiful little proof that shows you that it, with enough cards, Magic the Gathering is Turing complete, right? You can run all the programs in it, albeit very, very slowly. Now, this poses significant regulatory challenges because we have computers that do things that are um, uh, complicated and not always things that we would like, right? Uh, whether that's guns that uh, um, uh, print, uh, uh, guns, that, uh, guns that are printed out from 3D printers, or uh, drag racing robocars, or software-defined radios that are intended to be able to like uh, dynamically find a frequency to be a baby monitor in, but if you load the wrong, wrong firmware into them, they become, they become air traffic control devices. Um, and historically, the way that we solve these problems is with uh, rules about what you could and couldn't make, right? If you made a, a, a device um, that was supposed to be a baby monitor, you'd take it to the FCC and they'd take a good look at the circuitry and they'd examine your quartz crystal. And if it looked like it might accidentally become an air traffic control device, they'd send you back to the drawing board. Uh, and otherwise, you get to ship it. And although, you know, there are probably dozens of people in this room alone who could take that baby monitor and given a workshop turn it into an air traffic control device. Nobody was worried about that happening by accident. And, um, and of course, those people could also do it from scratch. They didn't need the baby monitor. So, so you know, the FCC had a regulatory model that was leaky, but not, uh, not useless, right? It, it actually had some, some kind of colorable claim to doing what it was supposed to do. But none of this stuff works in the realm of uh, modern technology. None of it works in the realm of the general purpose computer. And to understand why, we need to have a very quick, I promise you, detour through the copyright wars, which is easily the most tedious subject in technology, and yet the one that seems to exert inescapable gravity on people who care about this stuff. Mostly because, I, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot, and I think that it's not necessarily because the entertainment industry punches so well above its weight, although they are pretty good lobbyists. I think it's because um, the, uh, it's, it's easy to think that if you make a law limiting how people watch TV, that the worst thing that's going to happen is you might screw up how people watch TV, right? Like, that really it's just trivial, right? You're just messing with entertainment. It's not, it's not going to, like, redound through all these other things. And as a result, the, the, no matter how dumb and farcical the idea was for solving the copyright wars by regulating computers, it kind of, it kind of came to pass. And so we have in the copyright wars this kind of microcosm of where we might be headed. So you might remember that in the mid-90s, DVD players started to appear. And they were computers that did a thing that computers had never really done before. Sometimes when you asked a computer to do something before the DVD, it would say syntax error, right? 
Like, I don't know what you mean. And, and sometimes it would say, um, uh, 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 error, 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 crash, uh, core dumped, right? Uh, I know what you mean, but someone made a mistake when they made me. Uh, but sometimes a, a well-designed computer might say, that sounds like a crazy thing you just asked me to do. Are you sure? Right? But there was always a yes-no prompt. But what computers didn't really do very often before the, uh, before the DVD player came along was say, you're not allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to let you do that. Um, so you put the DVD in, and it would say, I'm sorry, this disc is from the wrong country. Although I know how to play it, I'm not going to. Right? Or uh, I know you've just pressed fast forward. I, I, I received your fast forward input. You've got to watch the FBI warning. I'm sorry. Right? Uh, <laughs> And that was not a thing that we'd really seen before. Um, and in particular, where it got really weird is when our computers got optical drives that could read DVDs. And you'd start to stick things in your optical drive, uh, and you would say, copy the data off of this mass storage device onto this other mass storage device, which is like the most foundational thing you can ask a computer to do practically. And the computer would say, no, no I'm not allowed to do that. Right? And that was, that was just weird right, for this stuff to start happening. And the way that it did it is by using cryptography. Uh, and I mentioned before Alan Turing uh, and the Turing Complete Computer. Another piece of Alan Turing's legacy is, is the uh, cryptography as we understand it today. He and the Polish mathematicians who worked on cracking the, the Nazi and Japanese ciphers in World War II, um, they, uh, they, along with colleagues all around the world, developed modern cryptography as we understand it. And it's been developed since by many other people. And it's, and it's an amazing thing. In the same way that the general purpose computer is kind of a new thing on this earth, so is modern cryptography. Um, uh, and um, it has inc lots and lots of wonderful uses. But one of the things it turns out not to be very good uh, for is stopping people who own computers from doing things that we don't want them to do with them. Now, a, a really quick crypto primer. Uh, uh, I'm sure many of the people in this audience tonight already know this stuff, but I'll go through it really quickly. In crypto, we usually talk about three people uh, as a kind of the base example. We have Alice and Bob and Carol. Lately, I've been using Alice and Bob and Clapper for historical reasons. And um, Alice and Bob trust each other. They like each other. There are like love songs about Alice and Bob. And uh, they want to send each other a message. And they don't want Carol to know that message. Um, but they make some assumptions about Carol, right? The first assumption they make about Carol is that she knows that the message exists and can get a copy of it in, in transit. There's lots of good reasons to assume that. Um, if you're using a wireless interface, uh, Carol might be within the range of that electromagnetic transmission. Um, if you're using the public switched internet, Carol might be any one of the people who owns a computer between you and, and, and uh, Bob. Um, if you're using a satellite interface, well, you know, it might be anyone on the same continent as you, right? So there's good reason to believe that Carol can probably figure out what's going on, what, that there's a message transiting and get a copy of it. They also assume, pretty crucially, that Carol uh, knows what you did to the message to scramble it. Right? Alice and Bob don't make up their own scrambling system. They use the one that everybody else uses. And that's a thing that's sort of counterintuitive for a lot of people, but really it's easy to understand. Um, back before we had science, we had a thing that looked a lot like science called alchemy. And alchemy worked a lot like science, um, but they were trying to do, solve like just a couple of really hard problems. Their, their, their um, Apollo mission was turning lead into gold. 
And turning lead into gold has a weird game theoretical outcome, which is that if two people turn lead into gold at the same time, then they're like in a race to devalue gold as quickly as possible. Each one of them just wants to pump out as much gold as possible uh, before the other one does in order to, to convert it to something that will be valuable once the gold goes away. It's basically like the De Beers diamond model. Um, and, uh, and, the, the, um, and so alchemists were super secretive, right? Everything that an alchemist learned on his way to figuring out how to turn lead into gold, he, he made sure nobody else knew about. And um, it turns out that like, um, people have an endless capacity for self-delusion. And so people, unless someone else is there to tell them about the dumb mistakes they've made, they make dumb mistakes. And that's why, for 500 years, every alchemist discovered for himself the hardest way possible that drinking mercury was a bad idea, right? <laughs> and so alchemy stalled out as a, as a science. Their moonshot didn't progress. Um, but over time, um, alchemists got, uh, went through a kind of phase change, and they started publishing. They started telling other people what they'd learned. And in the process of telling other people what they've learned, they, they did real alchemy, not turning lead into gold, but turning superstition into science. Because as soon as you published, then someone who could spot the error that you hadn't spotted for yourself could tell you what you'd done wrong. Now, this isn't always a very collegial process. Sometimes it takes the form of a kind of whack upside the head and a, and a you dumbass, you, you move the decimal place. Um, but through this process, whether collegial or adversarial, we got science, right? And we call that moment the Enlightenment. And anyone can design a security system that works on people who are dumber than them. But unless you tell everyone how you designed your security system, you are almost certainly going to be drinking mercury. You're almost certainly to have made a mistake that you yourself didn't notice and can't notice. This is why, the, the, in the wake of the Snowden revelations, the news that there are Al-Qaeda mathematicians developing uh, halal crypto systems is probably the best news that the war on terror ever had, because for so long as they were using the same stuff as the rest of us, it worked. But as soon as they start making up their own stuff, they're going to be they're going to be in a world of hurt. So. Um, the reason Alice and Bob assume Carol knows what they're using to scramble the message is because they would be nuts to use anything but the standards, the standard widely used, widely debated, widely picked on cipher, because otherwise they probably would be making a dumb mistake. They probably have, have missed something. So Alice and Bob need to keep a secret from Carol, but Carol has the secret message and she knows how it was made secret. So how do Alice and Bob keep their secret secret? Well, they have a key. And that key, and there are, there are very elegant ways of doing keys. You can have more than one key and so on. But for the purpose of this discussion, there's a key. And without the key, the crypto won't turn the scrambled message into the unscrambled message. And crypto is pretty amazing, right? Strong, effective crypto can do things like take the computer that's in your pocket that you bought for a couple hundred dollars, and it can scramble a message so thoroughly that if like all the hydrogen atoms in the universe were turned into computers that labored from now until the universe grew cool, it still wouldn't open up that message that you'd scrambled. Uh, and that's, that's an amazing thing. And this is how Alice and Bob do their deal. But that's not how crypto works in the, in the digital locks world, in the digital rights management world, in the world of designing computers to, make, uh, to, to, do, to stop people from doing things you don't want them to do. The way that it works in that world is... Um, I want you to buy a movie for me, and so I sell you the movie, but I scramble it. And then I make you use my player to descramble it. It's got my keys hidden in it. Uh, and my player limits what you can do with that movie. 
And since only my player has the keys in it, you can't use another player to watch it. So you'll never be able to do things except for the things that I've allowed you to do in my player. Well, the problem is that I hid the keys in my player and then I gave it to you. And I don't trust you, right? And there's a reason that no matter how good your bank safe is, you still don't keep it in the bank robber's living room, right? Because when you give the thing that you're, when you give the thing that the, uh, that the key is hidden, to, hidden in, to your adversary, and then let your adversary take it away and subject it to whatever depredation she wants to. And this includes adversaries not just who are people who might just want to watch a movie, but also like bored grad students who have an electron tunneling microscope, right? And um, when you give them to those people, and when anyone can make you give them the thing that you've hidden the key in just by buying a DVD player, right? They get to become one of the horde of Alice attacking Bob. Um, well, that, uh, that puts paid very quickly to the idea that you can use crypto to stop people from, um, from doing things that you don't want them to do, which is why all the different digital rights management systems, whether that's new versions of iOS that are trying to stop you from installing software from anywhere but the App Store, or um, new uh, uh, Bluetooth version, or um, rather uh, Blu-ray versions, or, or any of these other systems, new console systems. It's why they're all typically broken really quickly, often under really embarrassing circumstances like bored teenagers break them in an afternoon. And it's not because the people who make them are idiots, it's because they've been asked to do something impossible. So, um, sorry, let me just uh, catch up with myself here. So, uh, so how, does that, how do we make it work? Why is it still out there? Why is it still in place? Well, the, way, the reason it's still around is because not of a technical innovation, but a legal one. And remember Larry Lessig, he talks about the four ways that we regulate society, through code, through law, through norms, and through markets. And so we had this legal intervention in this technical question of how you stop people from, uh, from making their computers do what they want them to. And that's a law that came into effect in the United States in 1998 called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which you've no doubt encountered in your daily round, usually in the form of like a, a YouTube video that won't play because there's a box that says this has been removed under a claim from the, under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. But that's not the part that I'm talking about tonight. It's a big, hairy piece of legislation with lots of, of uh, twists and turns. The part I'm talking about is the part that says you're not allowed to break one of these digital locks or tell people how to break one of these digital locks or really give aid and comfort to people who are trying to break these digital locks. Um, so uh, this uh, law was passed in 1998 in the United States. It was exported successfully by the US trade representative around the world. Uh, usually through uh, bilateral trade agreements, sometimes through other kinds of trade agreements. It became uh, uh, an obligation like this became part of the WTO. So all the WTO nations came in under these obligations as well. Um, it's still happening. Embarrassingly enough, Canada, where I'm from, uh, brought in its version in like 2011 uh, or 2012, Bill, Bill C-11, which is embarrassing because like making dumb mistakes about the internet in 1998 when we still thought virtual reality was cool, that, that, that is barely excusable, but like to still have missed the fact that the internet is not just a glorified video on demand service in 2012 is just felony stupid. So the thing is that making a rule that makes it against the rules to break the other rules is not super effective, right? It didn't actually change the technical challenge, and more or less by definition, anyone who's willing to be a pirate and break the law is also willing to break the lock and break that law too, right? And so we, we had almost no impact on, on piracy from, from these rules, 
the, sometimes the industry says things like it's a speed bump, which apparently means that like it's, it's harder to, to pirate than it is not to pirate, which doesn't seem to be the case. It's often the case that the only way you can get something to play is to buy it and then try and get it to play and then give up and then pirate a copy that has had all the digital rights management removed from it. Um, uh, sometimes they say it keeps honest users honest. Ed, Ed Felton at Princeton, he says that's like keeping tall users tall. Uh, by definition, <laughs> honest users are honest. Um, but it did do some stuff, uh, some stuff that was actually really good for the industry and that the industry uh, made, made these digital lock stuff the thing that the industry, the hill the industry was going to die on. Um, one thing that it did was it changed the picture for competition. So you can think of every digital lock as a market that's been strangled, getting back to Larry Lessig's four factors, markets, norms, law, and code. So every digital rights management system is a, is a market that's been strangled. So think about how markets work. Apple made this, this uh, fruit-flavored mobile device, and then they set up a marketplace to sell apps on it, and they said, we're going to take 30% uh, of the sale price for all the apps. And they got independent software vendors around the world to invest collectively like billions of dollars turning that platform into the number one mobile platform in the world. And um, as soon as it was super successful, Apple turned around and said, now we also want 30% of all the revenue it generates through its entire life. And uh, by the way, we put digital locks on this stuff, so you can't take that app to somewhere else. And it's against the law for the people who are your customers, who we think of as our customers, but really we sold them your app. It's against the law for your customers to jailbreak their iPhones uh, and then install software from another store uh, that um, a competitor to us might set up where they might give you a fairer shake. So it's, uh, you know, it's take our way or, or, or no way. And in a normal market, what you would expect is that someone would show up and just make an, an app store that took 20% instead of 30%. And they would, they would sell you a little jailbreaking gizmo, probably the thing that looked like a USB stick that you plugged into your iPhone's uh, bum. And it would jailbreak your iPhone. And then, and then you could use their app store as well, right? I mean, that's, that's technically super unchallenging. It's just legally fraught. No one wants to fund that business. Um, and so uh, what it meant was that... Um, the industry could create these private laws, right? Like a law that says you're not allowed to buy software from anyone but me, a law that appears nowhere on any statute book, but in order to, uh, and, and they could then enforce it. In fact, they could outsource the enforcement of it to the public, right? The taxpayers would pay to prosecute people who broke this private law, right? It's, it's a remarkably good deal, and it's been the source of a huge amount of profit for the industry, right? Think about like um, CDs and DVDs, right? If you bought $1,000 worth of CDs and $1,000 worth of DVDs in 1996 when the DVD first appeared, today those CDs have grown in value improbably enough because now you can rip them, right? And after you rip them, you can mash them up, you can turn them into your ringtones or your alarm tones, you can share them you know, with your friends, you can stream them, you can back them up, you can, your kids can use them as background music, you can do a million things with them. Those are all new features that were lurking in potential in your digital music when you bought it in 1996. In fact, it's kind of, it would be remarkable, actually, if you had a piece of technology that had had new features added to it since 1996. But there is one, and you probably own one. It's your DVD player. Because in 1996, all you could do with your DVD was watch it. In 2014, all you can do with your DVD is watch it. And it's not like it's technically challenging to add all the features that we got for CDs to your DVDs. And they're valuable. People want them. Right? Like if you want to load your CDs onto your tablet, you rip them. Right? Apple will sell, gives you a free piece of software whose slogan is rip, mix, burn. 
that you can uh, rip your, your music and then load it onto your fruit flavor device and listen to it as much as you like. If you want to do the same thing with your DVD player, you either break the law or you buy all those DVDs again as downloads from the App Store, from the, from the iTunes Store, right? or from the Amazon Store or wherever. Right? So I understand why the industry likes this stuff, but I don't understand why we should like this stuff. Why should we have to let the company that made our toaster decide whose bread we buy and then use that to command monopoly rents on our bread? Right? It's, it's just, that's just crazy. And so that's, that's bad news. It's also bad news um, for uh, uh, people who want to do things with their devices that um, the manufacturer didn't anticipate. They wouldn't necessarily object to it, but it's not really something that they've given much thought to. And usually when you think about this, you think about tinkerers, people who want to do improbable things with it. But actually, it, it's, it's not tinkerers who suffer the most under this. It's people who have um, disabilities. And all of us, if we live long enough, will someday be disabled as well. Um, and uh, people who have disabilities often adapt the technology around them or work with associations to adopt the technology around them because it's, it comes with a bunch of interface assumptions that assumes that they uh, um, have the same number of arms and legs as, as, the, as the person who designed it, or they have the same visual acuity, or they have the same neurological profile, or they have the same suite of sensory inputs, um, or that they are uh, able to uh, see flashing lights or loud noises in the same way that the person who designed it. And they adapt their technology to their needs, or other groups do. So like the Royal National Institute for the Blind in the UK where I live has done lots of work in adapting technologies to help people who have visual disabilities uh, make better use of the technologies in their lives and, and leave, lead bigger and fuller lives. Now, un unlocking the digital lock to add more features is illegal even if the features that you're adding are ones that the company doesn't necessarily object to. And um, what we've seen is that the uh, accessibility side of, um, of uh, technologies that have digital rights management have lagged substantially behind the accessibility of, uh, of technologies that don't because there's this whole legally fraught world of opening up that device to get it to do something that the manufacturer didn't intend. And it's not just people with disabilities that suffer under this, also people in the global south and people who are economically marginalized often have a totally different use profile to people who live in places like this um, who design their technologies. And, um, and they want to localize the technology into their own language. They want to add features to them that, make, that uh, change the assumptions about the constancy of power or network access. For example, you might have technology that assumes the internet is always there. Um, and if you're someone who travels a lot, you know that those technologies can be very frustrating because it's often the case that the internet isn't there just when you need it. And that thing that you thought you'd sync to your device isn't synced anymore. And the, and the person who designed it assumed that if that ever happened, you just click the retry button. But now you're in a place where there is no network access. Well, in sub-Saharan Africa, that describes the characteristics of, of schoolhouses pretty well. And so a group of people got together to design an operating system for use in rural schoolhouses in sub-Saharan Africa. And they started with a GNU Linux operating system that many people are familiar with. And they designed it so that it wouldn't need a full-time tech support person, that it could, it could be largely self-supporting. They designed it around the idea that it would have inconstant access to both electricity and networks. And they designed it around the idea that the hardware might change, that components might fail and be swapped in uh, between reboots. That operating system is called Ubuntu. And it's the most successful version of GNU Linux. And it's the one I use. Because although my world and the world of school children in sub-Saharan Africa are very different, 
My problems with my technology are almost the same. I break my computers all the time. I never have electricity. I'm never around the experts that I need. I'm usually nine time zones away from them with a phone that doesn't work. And my network access is almost always out because I'm on the road 140 days a year, right? And so I break laptops all the time. And I'm usually nursing one along uh, until I get to the next place in Ubuntu is the best operating system for that. And there are lots of people who've discovered this, right? That the features that the developing world needs are not just features that people in the developing world need, but that they're things that we need too and that we have giant blind spots about that we can benefit through this bilateral trade. But again, that possibility is foreclosed on when you have a system where everything that's not forbidden is mandatory. But as bad as those things are, and they are a big deal, and they're usually where we go to when we talk about this stuff, they're not the showstopper bug in the idea that you can solve these computer problems, uh, solve social problems by, by making computers control their owners. The real problem is that it's wildly implausible that somebody who wants to do something with their computer will find themselves stymied in their efforts to do it, um, unless you go to extraordinary lengths to stop them from finding out how exactly you are accomplishing the trick of getting their computer to disobey them, right? Generally speaking, if you ask your computer to do something, you expect it to say, yes, master, or maybe, are you sure? You especially don't expect it to say, uh, I can't let you do that, Dave, right? And when it does, you're inclined to like look around your hard drive for a file called hal9000.exe. And if you find it, you're going to drag it in the trash, right? And so your computer has to have some facility to obfuscate what it's doing, to hide where the programs and the files are and what they're doing and which processes are running. All that stuff is part and parcel of designing a computer that controls its owner. And that's super bad news. And it's super bad news because even that uh, is not very effective unless you also make it illegal to tell people where that stuff is hidden. Because uh, where that stuff is hidden is something that, that a uh, person more technically skilled than you might find out and then tell you and then you can delete that stuff. And so we have these digital lock rules that say telling someone where their digital lock is or how it works or where any of the flaws of it are, what any of the flaws in it are, is illegal. And that last part is the showstopper because if you know about a flaw in your iPhone's programming, you can exploit that flaw to make your iPhone run software that Apple didn't sell you. And so Apple wants to be sure that that flaw is not publicized. Those, those uh, um, jailbreaking, those zero-day uh, flaws aren't publicized. Any, any vulnerabilities that are found in these devices. They want it, those, those need to be kept a secret in order for the security model to remain intact. But those flaws aren't just used to add uh, support for another app store to your device. A flaw on your phone is a, is a flaw that can be used to take over your phone and use it to, uh, to do someone else's business instead of yours. And your phone is not a thing you, you walk around with and make the occasional call on and listen to some music with. Your phone is a supercomputer in your pocket that knows who all your friends are and what you talk to them about and where you are when you're talking to them. And it has a camera and a microphone and you bring it into your bedroom and your toilet with you. And it knows where, uh, where you bank and what your password is and um, every other fact of your digital life. And so not being allowed to know if there's a flaw in your phone, is a terrible, terrible idea. Now, um, Apple doesn't want to preserve the flaws in your phone. Sony doesn't want to preserve the flaws in your console. But um, as we've seen with the alchemists, unless there's some adversarial process by which bugs can be discovered and reported, those bugs will lurk. And when those bugs lurk, 
it doesn't mean that nobody discovers them. It just means that nobody who wants them closed discovers them. Um, people who want to attack people through them discover them. So sometimes those are spies. We saw the tailored access operations manual that um, was leaked and presented the Chaos Communications Congress last year in Hamburg. Uh, that was full of bugs that people didn't know about that spies had discovered and weaponized so that they could take over the cameras and microphones of people that they didn't like. Um, and uh, some of those bugs, it turned out, in the time between when that was written and that conference had been independently discovered. So the NSA discovered these bugs. They didn't patch them. Um, those bugs were independently discovered by security researchers who uh, disclosed them and had them patched. But um, someone else probably also discovered them, right? It seems vanishingly unlikely that the only two people in the world qualified to discover that bug was someone who worked for the NSA and someone who worked for a white hat hacker who reports the, their vulnerabilities under responsible disclosure. It seems pretty likely that there were spies for other countries who discovered them, that there were identity thieves who discovered them, that there were voyeurs who discovered them and exploited them. In fact, the day before the um, tailored access operations manual was presented, on the stage in the next room, someone presented some of the bugs that were weaponized in it, um, that, that they, they had been independently discovered and revealed at the same conference. So if you make it illegal to know about bugs in your devices, it doesn't mean that those bugs won't be known. It just means that they won't be known by you, that you won't be able to tell whether or not you can trust your devices. And that's an awful future to be moving towards. And we can see the first... Uh, uh, visions of how that might be by looking to our recent past. In 2005, Sony BMG shipped out about 6 million CDs, 51 titles, audio CDs. When you put them in your optical drive, when you put them in your CD drive, they silently uh, changed your operating system so that it could no longer see files that started with a certain combination of characters. It was dollar sign, SYS, dollar sign. So if you called your program dollar sign, SYS, dollar sign, hell9000.exe, it wouldn't show up in the file listings. It wouldn't show up in your process monitor. Um, and they did that because then they installed a program that started with that string that tried to make sure you didn't rip CDs. They just wanted to make sure you weren't listening to music in a way they didn't like. Um, but as soon as they did that, as soon as that became known, virus writers started prepending their viruses with that string, right? Because it was then invisible to you and your antivirus software. And so they started prepending uh, uh, malware with this because all complex ecosystems possess parasites, and when you weaken something's immune system, it gets colonized by opportunistic parasites. And Dan Kaminsky, the security researcher, he did some independent work on this and estimates that between two and 300,000 U.S. government and military networks were infected by uh, this, this um, uh, Sony rootkit and made vulnerable to malware that would be virtually undetectable uh, once, it, once it found their way into their computers. And the thing that we learned was that before this was disclosed, there were other security researchers who found it and didn't disclose it. Not because they weren't the kind of security researchers who do disclose, but because they were terrified of committing a felony by making it possible for you to rip a CD if Sony didn't want you to. This is the face of any, of any uh, uh, or this is the fate, rather, of any effort to solve problems with computers by getting them to control their owners. You end up putting a moat in their eye. You have to make what they do uh, invisible. And this should alarm you today. Because devices that entertain you today have converged with the devices that you use for everyday living. Uh, whether that's your phone or your laptop, the potential for mischief in not knowing what your, what your computers are doing is kind of asymptotic to infinity. And it's only getting worse because we are increasingly inhabiting a world where we have gestural and voice interfaces. And a gestural and voice interface implies a camera and a microphone. 
So uh, a house where you can kind of wave your hand and say T, black, Earl Grey, black, hot, is a, is a house where every corner of it is in view of a camera. And if you don't know whether or not that camera is be acting on your behalf or someone else's behalf, uh, it could be very bad for you. For example, um, Cassidy Wolf, who was the Miss Teen USA in 2013, uh, um, a, uh, uh, she visited a website where some drive-by malware was installed on her computer, more or less at random. Um, and that uh, was something called a, a RAT, a remote access Trojan. And the man who had planted it there used it to take control of her computer. He captured incidental nude photos of her passing in front of her camera. I mean, we, we, uh, there was some you know, really misplaced uh, critis criticism of the stars who had their nude photos leaked. Why are they taking nude photos in the first place? It's just silly, but uh, you don't have to take nude photos for nude images to be generated by your computer because we all walk naked in front of our computers because our computers are everywhere and most of us are occasionally naked. And so, you know, our computers know what we look like in the nude. And so he captured these nude photos of her and her login credentials for social media. And then he sent her an email threatening to release her nude photos to her social media accounts unless she would perform live sex acts on camera for him. And she called the FBI and he got arrested, which is how we know about it. And what they found is he had like 140 other victims who hadn't called the FBI, who hadn't had the self-possession that Cassidy Wolf had, some of the miners all over the world, right? Not knowing what your computer is doing is a terrible thing. And this is only the beginning. It's the opening skirmishes in this coming all-out war on general purpose computing because the conditions that led lawmakers to try and solve their problems in 1998 this way still prevail today. Computers will continue to cause problems and uh, they will continue to scare and infuriate powerful people uh, for example, you may have heard that uh, the Attorney General and the head of the FBI wants backdoors put into mobile phones uh, because increasingly in the wake of the Snowden leaks, there are people who are, um, uh, there are companies that are default encrypting their phones and default encrypting their storage. Well, um, there is no such thing as a backdoor. All a backdoor is is, is digital rights management, right? It's just a program that runs on your phone that you don't want there and that you are enjoined from removing, right? It's a program that lets people log in who aren't you and that you don't know about and that you don't trust and whose actions you're not allowed to monitor and that under no circumstances will reveal to you whether or not it's being used. It's, it's, just, it's just yet another version of this, of this thing where you have a program that tries to control the owner. And it seems implausible that um, Congress, who are willing to give the entertainment industry a special law saying it's against the rules to tell someone how to change their device so they can play Mario without permission are not going to say it's against the rules to tell someone how to change their device so that the FBI can't listen to them if they have a warrant, right? So uh, it seems pretty likely that for so long as this is normatively acceptable, getting back again to Lessig's four rules, norms, laws, code, and markets, for so long as this is normatively acceptable as a way to solve our problems, there will be lots of people coming out of the woodwork for this. You may have seen in the New York Times the article about subprime auto lending. Now that everyone's houses have been uh, flipped and uh, emulsified, we need to get people borrowing for something else. Now it's cars. And um, uh, the way that you do subprime auto lending uh, is you fit the cars that you do subprime loans for with a governor on the uh, ignition switch that's connected to the internet over wireless and has a GPS. And if you miss a payment, well, first they start, that's, that's super creepy. Some of them, they blare at you con continuously after you put the key in the ignition. You are late on your payments. You are late on your payments the whole time you drive, right? But after 30 days, they just turn off your ignition, 
right? And nobody wants this, and there are lots of crazy bad failure modes, like there was a lady in the New York Times who'd driven her kids out to a remote wilderness for like a nature hike, and then got back and found out that her ignition switch had been killed, and there were like no mobile phone service, and no one else, and there were wolves, right? Like just terrible failure modes, right? So nobody wants this, and as you might expect, it's no easier to design an ignition switch controller that people can't disable than it is to design an iPhone stop you from installing other people's software thing that, that, that um, nobody knows how to remove. And YouTube, indeed, is full of videos explaining how to remove your ignition switch governor. And again, if Congress was willing to give a law that says it's against the law to uh, figure out how to uh, watch TV the wrong way, then why wouldn't they say it's against the law to tell someone how to steal a car, which is how the subprime auto industry views this practice, right? So this is extremely alarming because computers have colonized the fabric of our world. Computers are in the center of all of our problems because computers are in the center of everything we do. And we continue to regulate networks and computers as though they were glorified video-on-demand service or jihadi recruiting systems, or better pornography distribution systems, and not as nervous systems of the 21st century, not as the system through which everything we do today is involved and everything we do tomorrow will be required. We lack gravitas in the way that we talk about the internet. So um, people ask me if I'm optimistic or pessimistic about this stuff, whether technology will liberate or enslave us. And I have very little use for both optimism and pessimism in this context. Um, it seems to me that optimism and pessimism are by way of making a prediction about the future. And with, uh, with all uh, due respect and apologies to the futurists in the room, I think it's a mug's game. Uh, I think that uh, to predict the future is to imply that it will arrive no matter what we do. Right? I think it's fundamentally a council of despair. The, the future changes based on what we do today. We might predict what outcome might arise out of this course of action or that, but to be optimistic or pessimistic is to assume that um, what we do doesn't really matter. And I don't think that's the case. I, and moreover, if I did think that was the case, if I did think that in the future technology was way more likely to enslave us than to liberate us, I would do exactly the same thing I would do if I was sure that the reverse was true, which is do everything I could to armor computers so that they served us rather than controlling us. No matter, what, no matter whether you were optimistic or pessimistic, that would be your project. So rather than having optimism or pessimism, I'm going to ask you to have hope. Hope is why if your ship sinks in the middle of the sea, you tread water. Not because there's any real likelihood of being picked up, but because everybody who was picked up treaded water until it happened, right? <laughs> and uh, moreover... We need to have hope not just for ourselves as people who are technologically accomplished, but we have to have hope for the people around us who are going to bring along for the ride, for the same reason you would kick twice as hard if your ship sank in the open sea and there was someone there who couldn't kick for themselves. You would, you would hold them up too. And, you know, the earth is full of people and things that we love. As the eminent sage the Tick once remarked in his uh, cartoon show, um, don't destroy the earth, that's where I keep all my stuff. <laughs> so have hope, right? And hope, hope is not blind, and hope is not passive. Hope requires action. You have to not only hope that the ship will be along to, to, to pick us up, but you have to kick until it gets here. And there are organizations that have devoted themselves to this project since the earliest days of networks and computers. Uh, I used to work for one of them, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. It's uh, headquartered here in the Bay Area. 
There are other organizations like the American Civil Liberties Association, Public Knowledge, Demand Progress, uh, the Fight for the Future Coalition, and so on and so on. Actually, the most heartening thing about this is how many of these there are. And, you know, we live in the real world. And in the real world, it's impossible to be perfect, right? It's hard enough to be a vegan, let alone a breatharian. And so you probably uh, have a fruit flavor phone. Or if you don't, you probably give money to Netflix, who insisted that the World Wide Web standards have DRM added to them. Or if you don't do that, you're probably a Comcast subscriber, and you're helping destroy network neutrality with every dollar you send to them. And I'm not going to ask you not to spend that money. We live in the real world, right? And all of these companies deliver real value to us through their products and services. That's why we give them the money. They're also, incidentally, destroying everything that we care about. <laughs> but we can do something about that. So what I'm going to ask you to do is just do a budget. Add up what you're spending on stuff whose companies, whose owners, whose manufacturers have devoted themselves to the project of turning the internet into Skynet. And take some portion of it. Decide how much you think is fair. 50% is pretty good. Even 10%, the tithe, is pretty good. And pick one or more of those organizations and give it to them. As a little hedge, right? Hedges, hedges isn't just for hedge funds, right? A little hedge for the future. A little thing that you can do to kick towards it. And even better, if you're a technologist, if you're a lawyer, if you're an entrepreneur and you're getting involved in this stuff, these organizations all have opportunities for you. Um, there are uh, uh, mailing lists for um, cooperating engineers to work on technical challenges. There are, is software that needs your contribution. There are uh, things that you can do at home, like crypto parties, where you can invite your friends over and help raise the cost of spying on a new person from $0 to $10,000, at which point the NSA is going to actually have to choose who they spy on instead of just spying on everyone on the off chance that someone does something bad. Um, those are all practical things that you can do to help make a future in which technologies do serve us, in which the stuff that you're planning to do here with this redesigning the internet and making a new one will not ship out of the gate with a bunch of prohibitions on telling you about the flaws in it that will expose you to every conceivable risk. So that's my talk for you tonight. And um, thank you very much for being so attentive. And thank you to the Institute for the Future. Um, and I, I want to point out before we go to questions that we have an amazing bookseller back there who's only brought my books, but um, even if you don't want one of my books, I would urge you to visit your community bookseller uh, at some point and get someone else's books there because having a great community bookseller is a rare privilege. And those of you who live close enough to here to drive, the, you are very privileged to have that. So. Bell Books, and it is really a classic old-time bookstore. And the books that Faith has there are actually pre-published versions of Christ's latest book, which is titled... Uh, Information Doesn't Want to be Free. And can you kind of give sure. us a little I, bit? Sure. I don't need that microphone. I have this one. Yeah. Um, uh, so you may have heard that this fight is about whether or not information wants to be free, right? It's, it's, it always seems to get trotted out at discussions like this. Oh, you just, want, you just think information wants to be free. And I'd heard that too over my career working on this stuff. So to get to the bottom of it, I actually um, I invited information to a cabin in Mendocino. And um, we built a sweat lodge, and we, uh, we drank oaky Chardonnay. Uh, we wept about our parents, and when it was all over, information took me in a, in a great manly hug, crushed me to it, and I felt its stubble rasp against my cheek, and I smelled the wood smoke, and it whispered its secret in my ear, and it said, 
I don't want anything from you guys except for you to stop anthropomorphizing me. <laughs> because information doesn't want a damn thing, but people want to be free. And when in the name of restricting how people gain access to information, you add surveillance and censorship and control to the nervous system of the 21st century, you make the project of human freedom that much harder to accomplish. So now I think we're going to take some questions. I'll right. remind you that a long rambling statement followed by what do you think of that is technically a question, but not a good one. Uh, and also, I've noticed that my Q&As tend to be a bit blokey, so I've been alternating genders. So if you're male-identified or female-identified, we'll go back and forth. If you're non-binary, just put up your hand whenever you'd like. I'm going to start with one. Okay. You're the, you're the initial inaugural so, male. So, you can, and you can answer blokey if you'd like. Okay. Uh, so we're talking about um, a fresh design for a peer-to-peer -peer internet mm -hmm. that coexists with the existing legacy um, internet infrastructure. Can, can you give us some first principles or some thoughts um, that we should really hold deep in mind as mm -hmm. we begin to, to contemplate and design a new peer-to-peer -peer internet? Well, so one thing just to keep in mind is that um, all, all networks are swallowed by and swallow the internet, right? Uh, Genevieve Bell from Intel uh, did a wonderful piece of research where she went and um, looked at air-gapped networks that were supposed to be not connected to the internet. Uh, so internal networks at hospitals or banks or governments or military institutions. And she found like 201, they had been bridged into the, into the rest of the world because the internet is, has everything, right? And your private network has less than the internet has. And so the chances are that there's something on this side of the air gap that, this, that someone on this side of the air gap needs. And the temptation to hook the two together seems like completely unstoppable. And it turns out that preaching abstinence doesn't work any more for people that the IT uh, admin, administrators are in charge of than it does for teenagers. And so the one thing to, to, to consider from the beginning is that your network will be the internet. Right? It, no matter what, it will be the internet. And the internet has subsumed and been subsumed by lots of networks before it. The network that you're building, let me see, what, what other principles? Um, so we have this idea that our telcos are creations of the market, which is a weird and totally uh, contrafactual idea. You know, telecoms companies only exist because of huge public subsidies. And I don't mean like DARPA helping AT&T along in the old days. I mean like if AT&T or Comcast or any other uh, telecoms company wants to wire up all of San Francisco and they had to pay for every square foot of real estate they upended to get the wires in there, then um, they would pay an ungodly amount of money that they would never recoup, right? And so they get this public subsidy that's worth effectively trillions of dollars. All those poles, all those punch downs into basements, all of those, all those uh, um, uh, uh, conduits under the ground that if, if you wanted to do that private sector, you never would. Uh, and so um, when they go to the FCC and they say, we want to we wanna be able to practice network discrimination, their argument is, it's our network, we built it, we should be able to manage it however we want. And the right answer to that, I think, is like, if you want a private enterprise network, build one. But once you take the king shilling, like, you're beholden, right? If you, if you take a trillion dollars in public value, you've got to deliver public value. And I think the FCC's position, you know, in any sane world would be like, you've got 60 days to get your copper out of our dirt or we'll buy it from you for the scrappage costs and find someone who's willing to take, you know, a 10% smaller dividend for their shareholders this quarter in order to operate their networks on the principles that their customers want and that are uh, manifestly in the public interest. So um, 
that's all a long-winded way of saying, like, your network operators, whoever operates your backhaul, I think need to understand that they, that they are doing something in the public interest, that although there may be um, profit on the table for them to take, that it's there only after they've fulfilled a public duty that has to be well articulated. Because the, the, that common carrier kind of program, I mean, ISPs are not common carriers, but that common carrierish role um, is one that comes with a public responsibility and sense of duty. And I think that you, you need to solemnize that somehow in the way that you set out your network, that there is a, that there is a certain public duty implicit in being part of this network effort. Great, great. Thank you. All right, now let's Any open it up. questions? For, we have some really smart people in the room here. Sure. So raise your hand at the Institute for the Future. All we right, will there's hold a, the there's a, a woman back there. So the question is about money and about if you're, if you're not uh, paying for the product, you are the product. And is, is the reason that there's so much surveillance because uh, we're, not, uh, we're not paying, so we're getting it for free, so the surveillance business model is built on top of it. It is, like, I mean, it is uh, a, a, a good aphorism, right, that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product. But increasingly what we're seeing is that it's both. You pay for the product and you're the product. Right, that there's like over and over again, we're finding companies that do, that play both sides of that street. I think that like there's what economists might call moral hazard right now in the surveillance business model. In that, um, one of the most significant ways that we could get surveillance out of our technology is to um, is through a combination of regulation and markets. Right, like we may say through regulation that if you breach data for your customers, you have to. Um, pay them back all of their potential losses, right? At which point insurers would go around to companies that do tons of data collection and say, your like, lifetime expected revenue from all of this customer's public, uh, private information is like $27, and your expected liability is like $100 million. We're not underwriting that, right? And so that would just, I mean, it, it would just sort of collapse off the back of it. But no state is going to do that to the extent that um, they have a giant surveillance apparatus that's totally dependent on, on concentration in the online sectors, gathering all of this information into just a few silos, right? Um, so, you know, the, the states aren't going to tell companies that they're not allowed to collect PII if they're relying on them as a cheap way to get to, to spy on people, right? Um, and so, uh, and in fact, they will, they will cooperate with the cloud in defending itself from insurers who want to assess the real cost of collecting PII, for example, um, and, and, uh, because they recognize that if Facebook isn't gathering all your data, then um, they'll have to do it, right? And that's much more expensive. You know, there's, there's the, they have the uh, public-private partnership with Facebook, where Facebook gathers your data and then they mine it, or, or, or Google, or whatever, right? This is, this, is their, this is the way that it works. And so I think that the... the the issue of state and private surveillance can't be disentangled, and it's not enough to pay for services, because we, we see, like, people who buy subprime car loans, people who buy subprime car loans pay like 10 times more than you or I do for their cars, right? They're not only the customer, they're the best customer that that bank has, and um, they are more surveilled than any of us. So it's not enough to just, to just go for business models where someone pays. Although, you know, I, 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 I take on board that there's some wisdom there. Uh, indeed, it feels like the surveillance business model is not paying the dividends anyone expected it to. I mean, Facebook certainly can target ads to 20-year-old cheerleaders in the Midwest, right? Which gives you a little more inventory than just cheer meets. But, um, you know, that's a fairly trivial thing. It's just basically direct marketing 2.0. 
Um, but this idea that if I like, I know what you're searching for, I can predict when you want pizza, seems like it's, it's been vastly oversold. And uh, you can see it in the quality of the ads that you get when, when you look online. It's not for lack of people trying to reach you. It's for lack of the ability to match those things up. And, and you know, I think the market has reflected this. When you add up Facebook's market cap and divide it by the number of users they have, you find out that every secret in your life from, like, asshole to appetite is worth a couple of dollars, right? And to you, obviously worth so much more than that. And Facebook's not really making their money off that stuff anymore. These days, what they do is they inveigle businesses to get the, to sign up their customers as um, uh, to follow them. So, you know, like, free Wi-Fi if you follow our cafe on Facebook. And then they shoot tons of traffic towards them. Uh, every time you add an update, they send it to everybody who's following you until it's become totally integral to your business. And then they turn it off. And then they send a sales guy around to you and they say, it'll cost $5 per thousand for every one of those messages you want to send out from now on. That's just the drug dealer business model, right? The first taste was free. It's not the surveillance business model at all. So I, I, I think that like ultimately like the final boss that we're going to have to defeat on surveillance is not the delusion that bigger haystacks have more needles in them, but the, the state's all-consuming need to know everything about us and their unwillingness to make businesses pay the true cost of that kind of surveillance. So the question is about surveillance and whether or not Americans care about it and how you get people to care about surveillance. Well, I don't think we've reached peak surveillance by any stretch, but I think we have reached peak indifference to surveillance. I don't think that, like, you're right that not enough people care about this, but more people care about it than ever have before. The Pew study did a survey of Americans three months after Snowden, so like a, 14 months ago. They found 87% of Americans had taken some affirmative step to protect their privacy in the three months since Snowden came out of the cold. Everything they did was useless, right? Because there are no products aimed at normal people that allow you to have more privacy, right? There isn't a checkbox on Facebook that makes Facebook private, except for the one that you resign from Facebook with, right? They're, they're, like all of the other ones are just, are there for the same reason there's lots of lines and numbers on the craps table, so you can't figure out what's going on, right? Um, and uh, the interesting thing about that is that investors didn't invest in the surveillance business model because they're ideologically committed to surveillance. They did it because they are depraved in their indifference to surveillance and their love of money. And so if there's an opportunity to make money from selling people anti-surveillance technology as well as surveillance technology, which 87% of Americans wanted a product that no one was making, suggests there is, then there will be investment in it. And there is, we've seen more investment in this than ever before. Not enough, but more than ever before. I think historically, and, um, Privacy technologies have been pretty wonky, and the like that is to say technically difficult to use, challenging to use, and partly that's because there's a certain complexity to security, but partly I think it's because in order to appreciate the case for privacy on the internet, you had to have a relatively sophisticated technical understanding of the internet first. You had to understand about beacons and third-party cookies and amalgamation and re-identification and de-identification, all that stuff. And so you could assume that everyone who wanted privacy was already clued in on all this other stuff, and you could give them fairly technical interfaces and no one would complain that much. But it's a bit like um, desktop publishing software before desktop publishing, right? All the typesetting software before desktop publishing assumed you were a typographer, and it was really hard to use. And then we got desktop publishing, and now most people can do things that used to require an incredible amount of technical knowledge with virtually no technical expertise. And there's still like an ineluctable, irreducible core of things that separate beautiful type from crappy type. 
but there's a lot of range between the typewritten note that you typed on your, on your Underwood noiseless and a beautifully typeset lithograph. And that is the space into which all of us have been able to move. And I think that there is a, an, an allegory there for, for crypto and security where there are tools that we can probably improve so that normal people can use them. Not so that they're good enough that if the eye of Sauron shines on you and the NSA decides that they need to know what you had for breakfast, you'll be able to stop them. That will probably require some real expertise, but enough so that the cost of them surveilling you isn't zero. So that means that they have to be selective. That's all we need. Do you think there'll be some kind of lurid violations of privacy that will drive oh, the design I mean, of a better experience? Have you read the news this quarter? I mean, I think that there will be more and more and more. You know, the, 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 uh, there was just a report from the um, California Attorney General that something like 18 million Americans, uh, Californians, had their identities compromised and were victims of identity fraud this this year, uh, as most ever. Uh, and um, you know that that number also isn't going to go down uh, for quite some time, right? Uh, you know the the attack surface of this stuff is getting bigger, and the barriers to reporting security vulnerabilities and, and improving them are getting deeper, not 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 less deep. So we need we need to have tools that are. Um, that are accessible to normal people. No, that's, it's just, it's like a tautology that that's impossible. So the question is like, if hiding a key inside something that you give to the person you don't trust doesn't work, what does? Nothing, right? No, you know, if it, it, it like, it, it's a bit like, well, you know, so this is the problem because sometimes people say, and I had this long argument with Tim Berners-Lee when he was putting DRM into HTML5, he won't answer my emails anymore because we had such a, a, a hard argument about it. And he said, you have to be able to propose a solution. I'm like, I don't have a solution because it's an insoluble problem, right? Just controlling how people use computers that they own is an insoluble problem because it, 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 it for the same reason that controlling how people use, like, like pri putting prior restraint on how people use their car is an insoluble problem. No one has ever said, make me a car that, that can't run over a kid at the bottom of a driveway, even if you're trying really hard to. Right? We might add safety features that warn you. We might have reversing cameras. We might have all kinds of things. But making a car that like, just stops itself, even if you put your foot down on the gas as hard as you want, if it thinks, if its vision system thinks there might be a child there, we can easily see how mischief would arise as a result of that, right? Like, how many false positives would your car get, and what would happen if it got them while you were doing 100 on the, on the highway with someone right behind you, right? You really want your car to obey you, right? Like, you want machines to obey their owners, and when they disobey them, you want, them, you want it to be in the nature of an are you sure, not, you're not, not that's not allowed, right? Um, you know, it's, uh, the, the, it often comes up like one place where the, the entertainment industry has bet everything is on streaming, right? Netflix and so on. And streaming doesn't exist. Streaming is a consensus hallucination. When you say, when I say I've let you stream this but you can't download it, what I mean is I let you download it but I think you don't have a save button, right? Um, and determining to a, to a nicety whether or not my computer has a save button when it's in my house and you're not, that's like an insane problem, right? And it's like, it's like saying, well, all these people with chronic back pain, couldn't we just give them an anti-gravity machine? I, I have chronic back pain. I would love an anti-gravity machine, but it's not going to, it's not, you know, like I'm not betting on it, right? Well, I think we need to shift the paradigm, right? Right now, states require 
firms to retain personal identifying information as though it were trivial to secure and unimportant if it leaks. We should be treating it as like plutonium, right? And we should be very sparing in who we require to store it, and we should be very stringent about the terms under which it's stored. I don't know whether we specify exactly what technology is used or we specify what the outcome is. We say that the, the penalty for, for getting it wrong is so high that you better invest very well in this. Um, you know, I, I run up against this because I'm building an e-commerce front end for my website where people can name their price for books. And the EU uh, wanted to stop uh, Amazon from cheating on its taxes uh, and Google. What they do is they sell all their e-books through Liechtenstein so they don't assess VAT on them. And because um, uh, Liechtenstein has a zero rated VAT. And so what they said is um, from now on, you have to calculate where your customer is and retain that fact and uh, assess one of 26 rates of VAT against them, which is bananas. Um, and, you know, books shouldn't have tax on them to begin with, but they were worried that if they exempted books but didn't exempt video games, that people would just rebrand all the video games as enhanced books. So they, they, <laughs> they you know, so they, they, they just sort of said, all right, this is like a necessary evil. Well, the problem is that in order for you to buy an e-book from me now, even if you're not in the EU, I have to retain two non contradictory pieces of solid personally identifying information for seven years, no matter where you are in the world, to make sure that you're paying your VAT. And I would happily just say, like as someone whose business is in the UK, wherever you are, I'll assess VAT. I would happily do something else, right? Like whatever it is. But this solution is like the worst of all possible worlds because I'm, I'm retaining information in a way that I'm in no way competent to retain. I don't want to build the safe in which all your PII can be retained. Um, I'm compromising the privacy of people's right to read without being affirmatively identified, which is stupid. Um, and I'm doing it for people who are outside of the EU's jurisdiction. I have to retain your data as an American to prove that you're not a European, right? Um, and so, you know, in every way, this is just rotten. And, uh, and in theory, it applies to American firms, too. In theory, uh, if you are selling digital goods in the U.S., the EU expects you to, retain, to, to assess tax on, on Europeans and uh, to retain your records and show them on demand to them. They might have a hard time enforcing against you uh, because you probably don't have any assets in the EU, but this is what the EU expects of everyone in the world. So we need to get this right, and the way to get it right is to start by changing the normative framework about how we think about PII. We need to stop thinking about it as something that you can just trivially say companies need to retain. We need to start thinking about it as stuff that's like unstable and infinitely toxic to retain because, you know, once the stuff leaks, it never comes back again, right? It's like this is the corollary of the fact that you can't stop people from copying stuff on the internet, right? The way to stop people from copying stuff is to not ever put it where they can get it because as soon as they put it where they can get it, they can copy it infinitely. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I feel for you. I actually don't know that banking is one of the applications where I believe you shouldn't be collecting PII, but it might be that that, that regime uh, could be uh, better thought through. But um, certainly, like, it's not the only one, right? There's PII collection for all kinds of crazy, dumb reasons. And again, there's this, like, moral hazard now where governments, um, you know, they want to do more surveillance. And one of the ways they're doing surveillance is by insisting, by expanding know-your-customer doctrines so there's more, more data points with named people on the ends of them. Apple Pay hides your stuff from the merchant. Uh, yeah, I don't know enough about Apple Pay to know whether it's a, a step in the right direction or not. Uh, in theory, if you can do a zero-knowledge system where the merchant doesn't know anything about you, um, then that's good. Uh, in practice, I don't know enough about 
what they're claiming or, or what they're doing. I, generally, I think we should be super skeptical of any claim that says, we have done this thing that's good for you, but we can't tell you how we've done it. You're just going to have to trust us. Yeah, I think open hardware is a big piece of this, and I don't think that it's like profit or not profit that does it. I think that like there are lots of people who don't use DRM and make a healthy profit, right? I mentioned toasters before, dishwashers or another, right? Nobody nobody tries to make dishwashers that where you can only load plates that they've approved, right? Um, even though like unquestionably that would be way more profitable than making dishwashers where you can use anyone's dishes, for the same reason that like locking toner cartridges to printers is way more profitable. Um, I think that, and, and it, we can all see immediately that if there was a rule that said you can only use my dishes in, in the dishwasher you buy from me, that it would be really easy to get around it. But if the state said, we will enforce against anyone who circumvents the dishwasher lock, then lots of dishwasher companies would probably do it. So really, this is a regulatory problem, right? We have effectively created this moral hazard where we've said to companies, you can make up any dumb law you want, and we will enforce it for you at our expense. Um, and uh, uh, all you need to do is put like a one molecule thick layer of DRM around it. It doesn't have to stand up to teenagers. It doesn't have to work. It just has to like look like it might work. You need to be able to convince an 80-year-old judge that um, this is a real lock and not, not a dumb imaginary lock. Because we don't use any security by default in the network, right? Because all of our tools are um, opaque to us, and can have long live vulnerabilities in them that just lurk in them that, that spies can figure out and exploit. And because we, we keep all of our data with these companies that are li liable to arm twisting by, uh, by spy agencies, the cost of spying on a new person is basically zero, right? Like if, if the, every person who signs up for Gmail costs Prism's operators nothing, right? Um, but if all of our email was encrypted end to end by default, if all of our uh, web sessions went through encrypted proxies, if there was SSL on everything, if, you know, like if, if basically, if the basic hygiene of, of crypto were followed, and if vulnerabilities could be freely discussed and published and patched, even if they weakened some dumb rule about, about you know, making sure you're entertained in only the authorized way, um, then the cost of surveilling someone might go up to, say, $10,000, right? You might have to... Um, sneak into their house and put in a camera. Or you might have to uh, get a court order to get a modified piece of software and then somehow convince them to install it as an update, right? Like there might be, the, you know, other stuff, right? And at that point, the NSA doesn't spy on everybody, which is like the thing you do if, you've, if, you've, if you're buying your, your hard drives by the shovel load. You just shovel it in. And instead, they would, just, they would have to actually decide who was likely to be suspicious and probably up to no good. And then they would have to spy on those people manually. They would have to do something, take some affirmative step. Right? That's, that's all the law enforcement regime has ever worked on. Um, it's, and it's, it's not, I'm not you know, necessarily opposed. There are bad people who do bad things. I mean, you know, if there's someone who you're pretty sure is a, is a human trafficker and you can convince a judge using evidence that, that um, shows that you have probable cause and get a warrant and that warrant is overseen and then subsequently that person, when you arrest them, can, can examine the evidence that was used to get the warrant and make sure that it was a good warrant, I'm totally okay with this, right? That's, that just sounds like a functional justice system to me, right? It's the thing where you spy on everyone, where you look out for pre-crime, um, uh, and, uh, on the off chance that someone's doing something wrong, that seems to me to be like just disproportionate, unlikely to produce the, the results that we want, 
um, and, uh, and, and has just so much potential for mischief, right? Like the NSA, one of the many things the NSA can't say anymore now that Snowden has come out is we only hire people who wouldn't leak our stuff, right? And now that we know that they sometimes hire people who leak their stuff, we have to ask ourselves, how many times has the NSA stuff leaked, but not to the press, but instead to a company or another government or a criminal or whatever, right? Um, and so, you know, one of the, how do we make sure that the NSA isn't, you know, isn't tempted to, to leave, to, or people aren't tempted to hack the NSA and get access to our stuff, everybody's data in the whole world? We don't let them collect it. And then they are less of a target. Yeah, crypto parties. Uh, so crypto parties are, are uh, a thing. They're like Tupperware parties for information security. You download a, a, a course kit, and you have your friends over, and you all figure out how to get better security on your devices. Right. Yeah, I don't think that's an internet problem. I think that's a pharmaceutical patent problem, right? Like, why are people buying drugs from abroad instead of going down to the? I mean, leaving aside the the, the assuming that they're buying um, drugs that are too expensive for them, which is the whole Canadian pharmacy story, as opposed to narcotics, right? Uh, it's, it's both, but those, they have different causes, right? So the, the, the reason that we have, um, uh, that, it's, that, that uh, people buy prescription drugs from abroad, like Canada or, or um, uh, the UK, is because in single-payer systems, they negotiate substantially better rates for life-saving uh, and life-continuing drugs. And so I, I think that, like, another way of formulating the question, how do we stop people from doing this, is how do you stop people who are dying from not doing everything they can to live a little longer. And once you formulate it that way, like you can see that it's going to take some pretty heroic measures to stop people from trying to buy the drugs that they can't afford and without which they will die or their quality of life will be severely uh, deprecated. It's going to be really hard. Now, as to like the, the war on drugs part of this, the, 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 the getting high part of this, uh, clearly taking drugs and, um, that are narcotic can, can do bad things to your life. But in general, I'm in favor of legalization and harm minimization. And I think, again, that would solve that problem. I think that you are trying to solve a, a, a big social problem with a technical intervention where sometimes that, that technology can have a role in solving social problems. But this is not primarily a, a technical problem. And I think it, it will, you can't solve it with technology. I mean, you could give people assaying tools so they could know what they were buying, at least. So like if there's, so for example, we have a rule like this for network switches. We have this rule called Kalia that dates back to the mid-90s that says that if you make a data switch or these day, a voice switch originally, now a data switch, you have to build in it a backdoor that lets uh, the police wiretap the calls and traffic on it without having to come down to, to your offices and hook up a piece of equipment. And so really it's just sort of there's a secret password built into all of our networking equipment and if you're a policeman, you can, you can use that password to gain access to the switch. And crooks routinely gain access to switches that way because, well, for the same reason that we see movies in which, um, like, the, the burly private detective 
gets a license plate number and calls his friend down at the station house, and that person looks up something that he's not supposed to give out to the general public, but then goes ahead and does for his buddy, right? Like, you know, it's just, even if as a class you believe the police are trustworthy, we have evidence that it's not perfect. Um, And so uh, right now what the FBI is proposing is that basically devices that are capable of scrambling messages that will then go across those switches have to also have a backdoor in their operating systems. Um, so it's not just the switch that has the backdoor, it's the endpoints that have the backdoor too. And this is an area where your, um, your second generation internet is not, or third generation, whichever generation we're on now, end generation internet, um, is not gonna help you. If there is a mandate that says there has to be wiretappability, that mandate will apply to you too. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I'm four square for your project of building another internet, but I, I warn you against the sin of um, nerd determinism that says superior technology makes uh, uh, dumb laws irrelevant. I understand that. But yeah. So we're actually thinking more about resilience than necessarily mm-hmm. trying to design something from scratch. Mm-hmm. The NSA, we know they can get into anything. So, no, but my point is, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not, about resilience or not resilience, the point is, what if they come along and and tell you and everybody else that if you're making an operating system, you have to design it so that it can't resist them, right? right? What if that system is already built? uh, It's a really good... What do they do if if it's already out there in the field? This is a super good question. It's one that came up a lot the last time this happened. There was a, there was a crypto wars fought about this in the 90s. One, uh, one thing is that um, it may just be that those computers age out. Uh, and they become trivial, and they become uh, um, antiquated, and they become uh, uh, suspicious on their face. Like in 10 years, anyone still using a 10-year-old computer might be up to no good. It's hard to say, right? I, I mean, I don't think that they haven't contemplated that possibility. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think that they understand that there will be other countries in the world that make computers, Right? And that those countries will have access to tools that we don't. I mean, the history of the crypto wars, there are people here who played a role in them, I, I'm sure. The history of the crypto wars are, 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 went through all of these possibilities, right? And, and they went through all of the economic arguments. You know, uh, John Gilmore built a computer from scratch that could crack the cipher that the NSA said was strong enough for the banking industry to use, but not so strong that they couldn't wiretap it. He built a computer for a quarter million dollars that could break the cipher in two hours. Yeah, the cracking does, yeah. Uh, and, um, and the courts didn't care, and lawmakers didn't care, right? Like, you could, you could pwn the entire American banking business for a quarter million, quarter million dollars, and they said, who's going to do that, right? <laughs> um, but what won, the, what won the day was a mathematician named Daniel Bernstein at UC Berkeley who was publishing strong ciphers, and the Electronic Frontier Foundation represented him and argued that his First Amendment right uh, to express a speech covered publishing code. And um, the Ninth Circuit and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, found that this, was, that this was true. They found that code was a form of expressive speech. And that precedent has been battered since, but it's, not, it's still intact. And it's why we have strong crypto today. And the point of that story is not that that's exactly how we'll solve this problem, but the point of that story is that the world is regulated by four forces, code, law, norms, and markets. And you've got to get all four of them in, in, in together. You, if the law is totally against you, you can't fix it just with code, law, and, and market, or code, norms, and markets. You have to use those as a cudgel to beat the law into compliance. 
because um, so long as one of those is out of whack, you will not have a stable system. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was provided by Jerry Brito of Coincenter.org, Corey Doctro, and the Institute for the Future. This episode was sponsored by GetKeepKey.com. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time.